the Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from My Town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fittendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing a half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. The big red bus that we've come to know and love as the Mojo Radio Show is headed due north and that is Rocktobertown. We'll get to that shortly. Driving the big red bus is Robbo. How has your week been, mate? My week's been awesome, thank you very much. I'd like to give a quick shout out to my parents who celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary over the weekend. Wow. Nice work, 55. Yeah, well, and, and the amazing thing is that they survived 50 of those years with me hanging around. So, you know, it's that not that That is effort. something that's worth celebrating and that's all almost worthy of a medal. That's uh, right. Quick check-in, 60 seconds. The rugby season is coming to a close. Had the boys go this year? Uh, we ended up in the semifinals. We made it to the semifinals this year. And? Uh, and? Oh, we went down, unfortunately. We went down. <laughs> <laughs> the upside is... You can hear it. The upside is we made the semifinals. The upside is we made the semifinals. And? That's the big takeaway. <laughs> and the boys stood up. We were depleted on numbers. We had a, I think we had 18 in total for a 15-man game. Went down by two tries to a team who had a 22-man bench. So I don't think there's too much disgrace in that. Uh, all right. We're, let's go around the grounds. AP in the house. Yes, I'm here. Hello, Lola. Hello, boys. Lola. Could you play us a little something-something to get us in the mood? We're going to the United States of America this week, Lola, and we're going to visit the White House. What have you got? She's love, she's love, she's in my head. She's love, she's love, she's love, she might be dead. Ooh, cryptic. It's the bus in gear? Uh, in reverse, but it's in gear, yeah. Remarkable fact, go. Robbo's Remarkable Fact. It's about time, let's go. A remarkable fact. This week's remarkable fact was actually inspired by a question you fired to Dov last week. Remember you asked him about the Hunter S. Thompson quote? Coming in skidding in sideways. Yes, our favourite quote. It made me think that someone like Hunter S. Thompson, there must be a million remarkable facts about. So I went and searched one and I found this one, which I think is a ripper. Back in 1993, Hunter was working at the ABC in America and was meant to be doing an interview with the Rolling Stones' Keith Richards. Keith, in his wisdom, decided that he required more money for the interview to go ahead, so he locked himself in his dressing room. When Hunter found out, 
He came downstairs with a megaphone, turned the volume up to maximum and played the sound of a pig being slaughtered <laughs> over and over and over again <laughs> until Keith relented and came out and sat through the interview. Now, the best part of this story is you can actually catch the interview if you jump onto YouTube and Google Hunter S. Thompson and Keith Richards, you'll find the interview that ensued, and it's hilarious. So your point is... Well, I think the nice tie-in there would be that, yeah, you know, wouldn't be the first time that an interviewee has locked themselves in the dressing room, but it's usually after the interview and they're usually in the corner in the fetal position. Wouldn't be the first time that we have actually had our voiceover guy come into studio in the morning and sound like a slaughtered pig when he first opens up the <laughs> no, mic. it wouldn't either, would it? <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week, this is quite interesting, our guest this week is Laura Gassner-Oting, and there's a lot to this interview and the setup, but I first heard Laura on a show, which I think Laura will get to during our show, and I was really fascinated by the work that Laura was doing and her book, her best-selling book called Limitless, and I was contemplating writing to Laura to say, look, I'd love to interview you about the show, and I mentioned it at a lunch one day with somebody who said, I just read that book and it's fabulous. And that sealed the deal. Laura Gaster-Oting used to work in the White House as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's administration and has had a very interesting background. And today, literally, after writing the book and it becoming a bestseller, now works with people around the world as a keynote speaker and doing one-to-one work, as you'll hear, helping people to find their own voice and generate their own confidence. The confidence is necessary to sort of tackle the bigger issues in life, the things that you really dream of and aspire to, and then join the dots to, well, you've got that idea, you know what you want to do. Now, how do you step into the gray zone and get it done? Laura is a very, very popular speaker around the world, is sought out for her approach to how we get stuff done. Laura, it's with great pleasure. We welcome you to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be there on air in Australia. When when you meet people today, Laura, and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, I tell people that I'm a speaker and an author, an executive coach, and my specialty is that I get people unstuck. Good, because that's what we want to talk about today. (laughs) You know, for me, my magical superpower is that I'm able to look at people and I'm able to see into their soul. I'm able to understand and see their greatness in a way that sometimes maybe they haven't seen it before or perhaps they haven't been able to believe it before. And I'm able to show it and reflect it back on them in a way where they can actually act upon it and do big things. And that's, I don't have, um, uh, you know, rigorous Ivy League education. I don't have, you know, I don't know all the people in the world or have all the money in the world, but what I can do better than anybody else is I can seek the greatness in others and reflect it back on them so that they can do amazing things. See, now you've confused Gary, because when we heard you said you you help people who are stuck, he thought you meant you help people who have their fingers stuck in the cookie jar. So now you've confused him. <laughs> well, you know, we do have a legal process for those people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was more worried about whether there was a camera on, so that Laura was looking into the studio, looking into us to see what was going on. I thought this could be a really short interview. That could be ugly, yeah. (laughs) The book Limitless, Laura, there's a line in the book that says, we know when things aren't right, 
we just don't always quite know what's wrong. How do we how do we navigate that situation deep in our soul? That was something you said at the top of the show about looking into somebody, looking into their soul. How we know because a lot of people walk around going, it's just not right, but I'm just not sure what's wrong. How do you navigate that? Like, you know, you know that feeling. I mean, either you're stuck or you're like stuck adjacent, right? Where you just you had a plan for who you were going to be when you grew up, right? And maybe that plan included being Batman, right? But like you had a plan and then you wake up 10 and 20 years after you finish school and you're like, mm, is, this, is this all there is? Like, is this all I was meant for? And you have this thing that you want to do in the world, but then you look at your inbox and you look at your calendar and you look at your to-do list and it doesn't actually match the thing that you want to do. And so you just, you know that there is more in you. You just don't know how to get it out. And so what I tell people to do is the very first thing that they need to do is they need to examine their own definition of success. When they decided what success was going to be at some point earlier on in their life, when they were 15, 16, 17 years old, and somebody said, pick a path, pick a college, pick a trade, pick, you know, university, pick a major. They made this decision that really every decision after was based upon. And yet when we're 15, 16, 17 years old, we don't actually have a frontal lobe, you know, like, the part of our brain that dictates good decision-making. And so it's like, no wonder that we look back all these years later and go, eh, huh, I'm not sure. But the problem is, is that those decisions were based on a definition of success that really somebody handed us along the way, whether it was a teacher or a parent or a boss or a friend or a spouse, somebody handed us this definition and we started making all of these decisions so that we could shoehorn ourselves into that definition. And so when people say to me, I just, I know that it's not right. I just don't know what would be right. I, I, I bring them back to, well, how did you get on this path in the first place? What does success mean to you? And they tell me all the things that success could be. And then we sort of unpack, well, why is that successful? And how does that make you feel? And is it actually success? And what we realize is that their definition of success isn't the one they've been carrying around in their back pocket for all these years. And so they've been leaning into the wrong thing. How do, how do you qualify the path? It's, it's, it's interesting because I've heard... Everyone from Navy SEALs or Marines talk about be on the path. Like if you're off the path, get back on the path. In your mind, you just use that term as well. What do you think the path is? And how do we how do we go about finding our path? How do we go about quantifying or qualifying our own personal path? So I actually take issue when people say get on the path, as if there's one path. And if you're not on the path, you're wrong. And there's two problems with that. The first is that the path is defined by everybody else, right? This externally defined idea that say the fastest and most expedient path to the corner office is the path. And that's the only one that matters. You know, that was what Cheryl Sandberg espoused in Lean In. And I read Lean In and I knew I was supposed to love it, right? The army of women loved Lean In, but I hated it. And I hated it not because she had all this privilege that she used to get to where she was. I mean, she'd be folly not to. We'd all be folly not to use any privilege that we have to get to where we want to be. My issue is how she defined success. And success was defined as only this one path. The, the corner office is success, period. And so I, I think, number one, it's externally defined as the path. And number two, the problem is that there's only one path. And I just I don't think either one of those things are true. I think that we should be looking for pathways that work for us. And there are going to be multiple pathways at different ages and at different life stages. You know, when I was 21 years old and dropping out of law school to join a presidential campaign in the United States, I was, I definitely got off the path, 
right? That was, that was crazy for me to do that. And yet doing that landed me in the White House working on a program that became, you know, the, the, the national service program of the United States where more than a million young people have served and in exchange earned college tuition, you know, improving themselves while improving their communities. Nobody would say that that was a failure. But when I came, when I drummed off of the path Clearly, there were a lot of people second guessing. The dean of the law school told me it was going to be the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Well, you know, jokes on her because things turned out okay in the end, even though I never graduated from law school. And I think that what happens is we say, like, you have to get on the path. And if we deviate from it, we're failing. When in fact, deviating from the path is the way we figure out what success actually means to us in the first place. If we get back to what we started with the show, people. Are there people who believe that they are on, they're doing what they should be doing? Then they get to a couple of years on the track and look back and go, actually, what was I thinking? I should have listened to others. Yes. Is there, is there a way we can do an audit, Laura, where we can kind of audit where we are and go, is this really the right thing for us to be doing? Or are we stuck in that dark cloud where this this is, doesn't feel right, but I think it's right? And I know this is what I was born to do, but it's actually not right. Is there an audit we can go through? Well, uh, I actually created an audit <laughs> as <laughs> we part of the book launch. So I'm glad you asked. Uh, so what I spent 20 years doing executive search for nonprofit, uh, non-governmental organizations, mission-driven universities, foundations, advocacy organizations. And I would approach all of my potential candidates with this, you know, this checklist, right, of the mission of the organization, the inspiration of the leadership, how, what kinds of skills they would learn, how big the impact they would make, how how prestigious the brand of the organization would look on the resume, things like that. Obviously, geography, benefits, money, salary was part of the, the rubric, but it wasn't always necessarily the first thing. So I would approach these candidates and I would listen for two or three of them and go, okay, if I got a few of them, great, we'll have another call. If I had four or five of them, terrific. If they're qualified, I know I can put them in front of my client. If I heard six or seven or, you know, oh my God, eight, the Holy Grail, I knew that the search was basically done and I could move on to my next client and not even worry about it. But then what would happen is I would notice that my candidate pools would kind of fall apart. And here's why. I would call them with this checklist and what they were looking for was meaning. And so even in a in, in a space where the jobs were all in meaningful organizations, they were still looking for more meaning beyond that. Like the money didn't matter unless the money mattered to them, right? The benefits didn't matter unless the benefits mattered to them. The new skills, the brand prestige, none of that mattered unless it mattered to them where they were on their quote unquote path. And so what I found was that it actually was something different. And it's what I talk about in, in the book, Limitless, as I talk about this, this idea of consonance. And consonance is that feeling of alignment, of flow, when the very best of what you can do is being called upon to solve the problem at hand, a problem you care about, and you're being rewarded for a way that's karmically, psychically, financially interesting to you. And that consonance comes from four things. It comes from calling, connection, contribution and control. And it doesn't come from this checklist, this random checklist that's not attached to meaning. It comes from knowing, is this my calling? Is this something I care about that gets me out of bed, this gravitational force that's bigger than me? And it could be a societal problem that you want to solve, but it could also be a business you want to build or a family you want to raise. It could be, you know, it's just something that's bigger than you. Connection, does your work actually matter? Can you see sight lines from how your day-to-day work actually helps you fulfill that calling? 
contribution, if connection is all about the work, contribution is really about you. Is this work contributing to the kind of lifestyle you'd like to afford, manifesting the values that you want into the world, helping your career trajectory in a way that matters to you? And then lastly, control. And control really is just how much personal agency do we have over the amount of connection and, con and contribution this work has towards the calling that we want to meet. And so the, the quiz that I put together is online at limitlessassessment.com. Um, and you could go to limitlessassessment.com and take this quiz. It's kind of intense. There's like, it's like 15 full minutes of real thinking. Cause you know, anybody listening to the show will be like, yeah, she's kind of intense. So the, the, the quiz is kind of intense, but at the end of it, you'll see a, a radar graph, one of which shows how much, uh, how much, uh, calling, contribution, uh, connection, and control you have in your life right now, and how much calling, connection, contribution, and control you'd like to have. So it shows where you're out of whack, where you're out of consonance, and then gives some tips about ways that you can actually get yourself back into consonance. So with your experience in executive recruitment, tell me the most profound question that you have learned from that time, and now looking into the souls of thousands of people that you meet and work with. Tell me the most profound question you could ask that gives you a great insight into how well people have the four elements of consonants in their lives or where the gaps are. If there's one question you could ask that gives you an insight into somebody in front of you, what question would you ask? Sure. I mean, it's the follow-up to any question that I ask, and it's a simple word. Why? It's amazing when you ask somebody why they've done anything. It's amazing what they say. But I, so that's, you know, I would always ask why, and then I would sit silently and wait for them to talk. It's incredible, the power of silence, and people will fill it with sort of blathering until they kind of figure out what they want to talk about. But it's in all the stuff they tell you, which is the unrehearsed part of the answer, that you really see everything. But I would always start my interviews with a question, which was, you know, I don't want to put you on the psychologist's couch or anything, but I have found that there is, you know, in doing this work um, for mission-driven organizations, there is there's a reason we do it. It's not for the prestige. It's not for the glamour. It's not for the money. It's because there is some person, some thing, some time in your life that set you on this path. And I want to know about your path. So I asked them to tell me about, was there a mother, a father, a caregiver, a person of the cloth, a coach, a mentor, somebody um, who, who, who's life story or experience with them affected them in some way, or maybe there was a diagnosis, maybe there was a world tragedy, a world event, there's something. So I always ask them to tell me a little bit about um, what that small hinge might've been that opened this big door that led them to where they are today. And it's fascinating because you will hear people tell you incredible stories. Like they'll tell you that they got into crisis communications because when they were growing up, their father was a drunk and they, he would come home Friday night and, and Friday was payday. And you never knew if he had a bag of groceries, an envelope of cash or a broken gin bottle that he'd whip at their heads. And you get really good at handling crises. Or you would hear somebody say, you know, when I was 
18 years old, I was shot in gang-related violence and I was bleeding out on the street and my cousin was holding my head. And I remember looking up at him and praying and saying, if I survive this, I will spend the rest of my life making sure no other cousin has to hold, you know, anybody else's head up. Or, you know, you would just hear these incredible stories and I would be so honored to be the, the, the recipient of those stories, but it's in the way that they would tell it. It was in the, 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 um, connection that they would have to the individuals and to, to those moments in time that would show you just how seriously they took the work they were doing. You know, it's that, it's the reverence of the, of the, 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 the dream of the goal of the life calling that they can only whisper about because they take it so seriously. That's how you know the person who's going to show up, not on a 9 a.m. on a Monday, but at two in the morning when everything, you know, all hell breaks loose. That's gold. That right there, Laura, is consonants gold. Is that imagine, I just think that's so beautiful. Imagine sitting and telling your story to somebody who was genuinely deep down honored to be sitting there receiving that story in a world that people don't really listen. I mean, they look at you, but they're not really listening. They're they're thinking about the next thing that they're going to say or their next post. They're not really in a conversation. I think a lot of leaders go through that. But imagine being able to talk to somebody who actually was genuinely deep down in their soul honoured to hear your story. I just think that's absolute gold. You know, when I first started my career in executive search, I remember one of the uh, older women who worked there came into the office at the end of the day and she just looked like she'd been hit by a bus. I mean, she looked destroyed. And I looked at her and I was like, oh my God, are you okay? You just like, she looked so exhausted. Like she just gotten terrible news. And she's like, oh yeah, I'm fine. She goes, I just, I've just been listening all day. And I remember thinking to myself, whatever, listening, how hard can that be? And then I learned how to really listen. I learned how to listen to what people are saying, to what they're not saying, to the hesitation in their voice, to the stumble over a name, to where you know that there's there's more there. And so if you just, if you're patient and you ask why, and you ask how that happened, or how did you feel during that time, or how does that manifest itself? Or tell me a little bit more about what you were going through in that moment. If you just, if you just ask open-ended follow-up questions, people will tell you so much. And at the end of it, they'll often remark, wow, you know, I, I've never told anybody that story before. I've never talked about it in exactly that way before. And I do think it's a huge gift that you can give somebody to really be present and to listen. My, my husband always remarks that people will just tell, like people tell me things. I barely even ask them and they tell me things. And I think it's because I have gotten really good at being present and, and really listening to people over, you know, 20 years of developing this muscle. But, and maybe that's why I can look into people's souls and really see what makes them, what makes them great. Um, but I, 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 I always, you know, I said that I I was honored to, to hear their stories. I really, I really did believe that they had placed a trust in me and, and I, I had to earn that trust throughout the entire conversation over and over and over. You know, it's a, powerful thing for a leader in the workplace but I was talking to somebody on the show and they talked about how quite often when kids run off the rails one of the things they'll say is that nobody was paying attention and it just seems Mm, to mm -hmm. me that as a parent if every time your child spoke to you or shared with you, you were honored to be that parent. You were honored to receive whatever that child was sharing because it could be something profound or it could be a throwaway. But in my mind, kids are genius. Kids know. 
and they know when someone's not paying attention. But gee, wouldn't it be lovely if we had every parent truly honoured to hear the conversation, the thoughts, the dreams, the learnings, just the sharing that a kid would have, any kid. And I just wonder how big a difference that would make. Yeah, one of the best pieces of parenting advice I got um, early on and I'm, you know, I have a 17 year old and a 15 year old. And so I'm, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I have, um, I, I work on it. I work on it every day is, is don't stop listening. Cause when you stop listening, they stop talking. And if you stop and if, and, and you can't stop listening to the small stuff because then they won't tell you the big stuff. And by the way, it's all big stuff to them. And it was really good advice. And and I there have been days where I am exhausted and the last thing I want to hear is like endless blather about, you know, what happened in the lunchroom. Like, who cares? And yet they care. And they definitely, I mean, they are they are bullshit detectors, right? Like they know when you're not paying attention and they know when, you know, part of your eye is on your cell phone checking your email and I, you know, they have, they have one job and, and, and I should be there for it. It's funny though, because you see so many people being interviewed on socials or on general media and they'll be about to do something and they'll say, I just want to make my parents proud. And my question is always, why do you have to go and do something to make them proud? Why don't you know they're proud? And we interviewed a former military guy. He'd been through some very, very dark times. And at the end of the interview, I said to him, what's the most important thing you say to your children? He said, every night, tell them that you love them and you're proud of them. Because he said, I didn't. And I just thought it was beautiful, but you still hear people all the time saying, I just want to make them proud. My question is, well, if you were really paying attention, you were really honored to be there and they knew you were listening and what they were saying was important and you told them you were proud of them. I just wonder what difference that would make. Yeah, it's it's funny. I don't tell my kids I'm proud of them. I ask them if they're proud of them. Because I don't want them achieving grades because they're going to make me proud. I don't want them achieving, you know, athletic feats because it's going to make me proud. I don't want them being nice to other kids in the lunchroom because it's going to make me proud. I want them to do it because it makes them proud. And then when they tell them, tell me that they're proud, I go, I, th- I think you should be proud of yourself too. I think that's pretty awesome. But I don't want them trying to jump through hoops to be the person I want them to be because I think that gets us in this trap where we're limited by everybody else's definition of success. I want them to do what they feel is being the very best version of who they are. When when my kids get grades from school, I don't say, is that a good grade or a bad grade? I ask them two questions. I said, Does that, I said, I said do you feel like that grade is reflective of your understanding the material? And it's yes or no. Do you feel like that grade is reflective of your preparation for the exam or the essay or whatever? And it's yes or no. And, you know, the the goal should be that it, the, their grade should be reflective of their understanding and their input. And if they don't like their grade, then they should work harder to understand it better or to do more work ahead of time. But they have to be the ones who are proud of it, not me, because it's it's their life. So is is that your take Laura, on reward the effort, not the outcome. Yes, because I think as a kid who, um, as a kid who who begged, borrowed, and stole to get outcomes that were not reflective of my effort, I think that the effort, putting in the effort, would have served me much better long term in life. 
I think systems systems beat goals. And I think that it's good to have goals, but you can't just, you know, you can't start a a, a, a football season and say, we're going to, you know, we're going to win the championship without a system to help you get there. Right. I mean, the, the, I think the system matters. And I think that when we push kids and adults to just go for goals, goals, they, they end up building a house of cards. So, you know, you end up, you, you know, you end up with companies that are looking for the quickie short-term quarterly reports, um, that are going to keep their shareholders happy, but that aren't actually doing the research and development and, and the hard yards to, to build products and programs that are going to keep the company running long-term. And I think um, it becomes a problem with leadership when leaders are, you know, so busy trying to get to the next reward that they're actually not working hard to build the culture within that's going to keep the, the company thriving long-term. When you were in that place, you were doing that, were you, when you think back, were you actually proud of yourself? And did you know that your parents were proud of you? Was that something that was conscious? Yeah. I mean, I knew that they were proud of my grades. I think that they would have been horrified to think about what I did to get those <laughs> grades. I mean, I don't, you know, they were, they were definitely, uh, you know, there were definitely times where I looked over my shoulder at the economics exam next to me or the chemistry test behind me for sure. I didn't, I, I was, I was not a great student. I, I am exceptionally poorly educated. I've got a lot of street smarts now because I figured I had to get away with it, but I wouldn't have recommended it. It didn't feel good. And it certainly didn't set me up to feel confident in my brain power. You know, that took a lot longer. And I think had I, had I spent time building, you know, the building blocks, I think I would have been in much better shape all around. A couple of times you've mentioned mission, being a mission-driven organization. What's your take on well, I think the word you use is purpose or whether, whether you think those two things are interchangeable, mission and purpose, but what's your take on finding our mission or living our mission or finding our purpose? What's your take on that? So my take on finding purpose is that I think we get purpose wrong a lot. I think we have this idea that purpose is this lofty purpose, this higher purpose, that it has to have St. Peter at the gate with his abacus, you know, taking score of our deeds on earth. I think it has, to, you know, we think that it has a picture of Mother Teresa next to it in, in, in the dictionary, feeding the lepers in India. So I think we get purpose wrong because I think it, we, we think that it has to be for other people at other times who are, you know, willing to prostrate themselves to the gods of poverty. But when I was writing Limitless, I actually looked up the word purpose because I, I, I wanted to know what it meant. And the word purpose means simply the reason for which something is done. That's it. That is the entirety of the word purpose. And so it made me realize, you know, if we have somebody who's working in a nonprofit organization and trying to cure cancer, we say, oh, they're so purpose-driven. Isn't that wonderful? But if you have somebody who's working, you know, at a hedge fund or on Wall Street and they are um, making tons and tons of money and they're donating tons and tons of money to that nonprofit that's looking to cure cancer, we don't say he's full of purpose. We say he's a philanthropist. He's in finance. He's a for-profit guy. And I I think the problem with purpose is that we end up purpose shaming people, right? We say one of those people has purpose and the other one doesn't. And he's, you know, greenwashing his money or whatever the case may be. I would argue that both of those people have purpose. They've just figured out a different way to manifest that purpose into the world. And so I feel like we all have a purpose. Maybe that purpose is curing cancer. Maybe that purpose is making lots of money. Maybe your purpose is buying a Maserati in a beach house and never giving a cent away to anybody else. I'm not going to purpose shame anybody. If your purpose is staying home and raising your kids, if your purpose is building a business, your purpose is being a, a corporate drone, 
fine. That's your purpose. And we can all feel fulfilled if we live into that purpose. We have to stop comparing ourselves to everybody else who says, oh, you know, purpose has to be lofty and higher and the rest, because it just becomes, we all become unhappy if that's the case. I think if your purpose is your purpose, then that's your purpose. Awesome. In an organization that somebody is working in, does the purpose have to be aspirational in order for people to know that they are turning up every day for something greater than themselves or just profit? Well, you know, profit can be something greater than themselves. I mean, somebody can turn up every day and say, I hate this job. It's totally soul-sucking. I can't stand any of my colleagues. And I think the mission of the organization is terrible, but I like the money that it affords me because I want to be the first person in my family to be out of debt and have financial freedom, right? Like it doesn't, there doesn't have to be something else. There just has to be your something else. And so with this rubric of consonants, uh, you know, calling, connection, contribution, and control, it may be that your purpose is that you want to raise your family and you want to be home at five o'clock every day and have a hot dinner with your family every single day, you know, of the week. So your purpose is there. So the, the, the job that you have isn't where you find your purpose. You, it allows you to have your purpose outside. You know, Laura Vanderkam, um, who who wrote um, I, I don't uh, I know how she does it and Neil Pasricha, uh, who um, is a wrote a lot of incredible books about about happiness and uh, is the thousand awesome things uh, 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 blogger talks they talk about 168 hours in every week and you have you know say 56 hours where you're sleeping and 56 hours where you're working right eight hours a day each of those plus work you bring home that leaves you another 56 hours. Uh, on on the outside. And Neil talks about how you take the sort of the sleep bucket and the work bucket and those two things allow you to really enjoy the the third bucket, the the other 56 hours. So it may be that your 56, maybe that your purpose comes from the time you spend at work, but it may be that your purpose comes from the time that work allows you to have outside of work. Is it incumbent upon the leader of the organization to provide a mission where the person goes, the words you use were the mission at work sucks. If that didn't, and it was a mission that lifted, inspired, and helped someone to appreciate the fact that there there is something greater than cash or st- or stats um, measurements in the business. And they got the financial rewards that allowed them to do all the things they want to do. If those two things could be matched up, would that then not mean that the house of cards would be more solid and have more solid foundation? I think that it's the mission. I think that it is the job of the leader of the organization to create a, a, a conversation, not around this checklist of things that really are not attached to meaning, but to create a conversation around consonants so that everybody in the organization can see why they are there. Maybe somebody's there because they want more control in their life. Maybe they're there because they like how the organization contributes to their ability to manifest their values on a daily basis or pay them the lifestyle that they're looking for. Maybe they're there because, you know, they love that they are directly connected into the bottom line or the the, the final, you know, impact of the organization. Or maybe it is that they're there because they care about the mission. But I think the 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 role of the leader is not to create you know, one monolithic, here is the mission, here is the purpose we all have to buy into it, but to create a conversation inside of the organization where people can be there for the reasons that they're there 
but also that uplifts the entire organization. So if you create this, you know, I have a lot of people say to me, well, you know, I try really hard to manage my millennials. And I just find that like, no matter how, how I talk to them, you know, I, I talk to them about all the benefits and all these things of the organization, like they just don't care. And I'm like, yeah, because you're talking about things I don't care about. Millennials are not looking at the checklist and going, yes, awesome. Millennials care about consonants. They care about organizations that are good for the world, that, um, you know, this is the first generation that's been the same person at work and at home because they've always been, you know, out on social media as who they are everywhere. So they want an organization that reflects who they are. You know, consonants at its very core means when the what you do matches the who you are. And so, you know, I believe that it is the job of a leader to create a conversation inside so that people can find the who they are in the what the company does. I'm going to take a little off-ramp here just for a minute. You mentioned St. Peter and the Pearly Gates, if they exist. James Lipton on Inside the Actor Studio, which people can find on YouTube, which is where he interviews the greatest living actors, producers, directors mm-hmm. in front of a live audience made up of students, first year, second year, third year students who are learning to do that. One of the last questions that James Lipton asks his guess is if heaven exists and you made your way to the pearly gates, what would you like God or St. Peter to say to you? What would you like them to say to you, Laura? So I'm not a super religious person, um, but I think I would want whoever it is that is up there to say to me the same thing I would want people down here to say about me when I'm gone, which is, their lives were better because I was some small part of it. I do believe we all have a responsibility on this planet to leave people and things better than we found them, right? I mean, do no harm, number one. Like, don't leave them worse. Um, But I think that, you know, Seth Godin talks about how each one of us has gifts and those gifts are unique to us. And if we decide to withhold them and keep them to ourselves, we're actually stealing from the people around us. And I think that's such a beautiful concept because, you know, so often we walk around and go, oh, I don't know, not me. I'm not ready. I'm different. I'm not good enough. Well, we're just different than each other. And what makes me maybe not as good as you is an opportunity for you to teach me something and make me better, which then deepens your knowledge of the thing that you're teaching me, right? And makes you better. And I think if we walk around and we hold ourselves back, we really are not contributing to making people and causes and things better. And so I I, I tell my husband all the time that i I don't want people, like anybody who cries at my funeral, he has to kick out. I want it to be a joyous affair where people talk about, you know, great stories of ways that I kicked their asses at times when they least wanted it, but did it anyway and, and made them better for it. I, I, ha- I surround myself with friends who do not let me settle for mediocrity, who know that I'm better than what I am producing and call me on it and, and don't, don't let me settle. And I, and I want at the end of my life for people to say that, I didn't let them settle and, and, and I made their time on earth better because I was in some small way part of, part of that time. And it's interesting, Laura, that when we speak to guests on the show who have a social profile, doing media, seem to have it all together. When you, when you look at their background and what they're facing, they're, they're no different to, to all of us. And something you posted on Instagram, which was really interesting that I want to get your, your view on, you said, 
This is recent. Last week I was told that I'm not good enough twice. Mm. One of those people looked me in the eye and told me she knew I had work to do, saw my future, believed in me, sat with me to help me map out how to get there. The other did not. She made it about herself and her own journey, one that she made clear she thought I could never hope to touch. You're not ready. It wasn't generous. It wasn't kind. It wasn't an accident. And it stuck with me. When you, when you have that with all you've learned, the profile you had now, the work you're doing, when, when that happens to you, in your quiet moments, and it's just you and your thoughts, What's your internal dialogue? Oh, my internal dialogue is, are they right? Am I not really good enough? Should I not do this? What am I thinking? I'm such an imposter. Of course. Of course, I'm crazy. Of course, they're right. I mean, of course, like that's the internal dialogue we have. You know, I wrote a whole, I, you know, writing is my therapy. So, you know, I wrote a whole blog post about it because it stopped me from throwing chairs out the window. Right? <laughs> I mean, it was, this is, this is how I managed to process the emotions. And, you know, here's the thing. I, if you were to keep reading that, you know, to, to your listeners, they would hear that I also said, and I realized she was right. I wasn't ready for the career that she had, but the career she had is not a career that I actually want. I want a different career. And so, yeah, I'm not ready, but I'm okay with the fact that I'm not ready. But in between the time that she said it and the time that I had done all the writing and processed it and realized that my path was different than her path, you know, again, there's not the path. I spent a lot of time feeling all of the self, the crushing self-doubt. I mean, all of the indecision and the uncertainty that that resign our best ideas to limbo. I was right there in that 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 hellscape. That that's it's not a good place to be. That leads me on to the Joneses. And I've heard you say that famous quote that comparison is the enemy of joy. Yet even that little that little conversation right there with yourself, you talked about comparing yourself to her. And then in the book, you talk about comparing ourselves to the Joneses and that you're very articulate, so <laughs> screw them. In fact, in fact, there's a post you put out that said, screw the Joneses. Screw the Stop Joneses. The Be you. <laughs> Perfectly, dorkily, snorkily you. The world needs more of you. <laughs> Do we just find ourselves doing more and more comparison? I mean, it seems that, I mean, back in the day, Robbo and I have been around, you know, the radio industry for, I think, three or four decades. We're pretty old. But back in the day, there was only, I don't know, two or three radio stations, one newspaper, two television stations that really only ran sport news. You really didn't get access. But in this day and age, in a millisecond, I can get someone else's beautiful world and start to compare myself. How do you, how do you, Tell me about the Joneses and tell me how we get sucked into this vortex of comparison. Uh, well, you know, I don't want to harsh on social media, but social media is the enemy. <laughs> but, <laughs> because, but I also, you know, we're connected because of social media, right? I got connected to um, to to uh, Jonathan Fields through social media, and then you heard me on his podcast through social media, right? Like we're having this conversation because social media exists, and I think social media is incredible at allowing us to build connections and networks and communities. However, the dark side of social media is that then we also see super curated versions of people's lives. And, um, you know, the reason I posted on my Instagram uh, story and for your listeners, I'm, I'm 
I'm at Hey LGO. All my good friends call me LGO. So at Hey LGO. So if they want to see all of these posts and my dorkily snorkely self, this, this was me on this beautiful beach vacation in the Maldives last week, which was, you know, a bucket list for me. I, it was a place I've always wanted to go to. And I sort of set a goal that if I, you know, worked my caboose off for four months on this book launch, you know, just every day, just media, 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 all traveling nonstop, barely seeing my family, we would go to the Maldives. And so I'm there in this beautiful place. And I could, I could post this picture of me, you know, just so with, you know, 8 billion filters on and, you know, like standing exactly in a certain way with like, you know, the, 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 you know, the margarita right in front of, you know, my fat spot or whatever it is that I want to do in my bikini. But I just put up a picture of me like standing out there in my like snorkel and my flippers. And I was just like, here I am. I could put a perfect picture up, but I'm not going to because this is who I am. And dorkily, snorkely, wacky me, this is who I am. And I feel like we should all do that because I think that's, that's, that's a, that's community service. (laughs) We should all put the unfiltered, terrible stuff up along with the great stuff. What happened is we, we, you know, we go to Instagram and we go to Facebook and we go to, you know, whatever Tumblr, Pinterest, whatever it is that, you know, your, your poison of choice. And we compare ourselves to everybody else and we're comparing our bloopers to everyone else's highlight reels. And so it's just, I think we have to say, you know, screw them and their perfect lives and their perfect families and their perfect first day of school photos and their perfect everything and remind ourselves that it takes a whole lot of Facetune and filtering and curation of pictures in order to get that one perfect thing that's not at all reflective of reality. And so I think that gets hard to do sometimes when we're inundated with it. And so I try to, as best I can, put up things like, hey, happy second day of school. I would have put up a first day of school photo, but my kids were such terrible people that they didn't stop bickering long enough for me to get the first day of school photo. So happy second day of school photo. And I, it's funny because I find on social media that those posts get more likes, they get more engagement, they get more shares than the perfectly beautiful, you know, sun-soaked beach wave, you know, hair photos ever do. We've talked about the book and we'll cover that off before we finish. And I've got a story to tell about your book that you don't know. Uh, tell me what what's something what's an, what's an ideal about what you do and what you wrote about in the book that you've changed your mind on since you wrote the book or started speaking about the book. What's something you go actually? I wrote that, and I'm now starting to have a different perspective, or something you've learnt about the content or yourself since you did the book. I would say that I would say that something that I wish I would have included in the book but didn't is that you know the book is called Limitless how to ignore everybody carve your own path and live your best life and I should have included a little section in the book about the people you shouldn't ignore you know that there are certain people like how do you find the people in your life that do actually matter and that you that you want to bring around you so that you, you you're not just going it alone. So I think you know there there would have been there's a section about family and about how do you, how do you, you know people you want to keep close to you. But I think I probably would have covered a little bit more about when you're in that sort of in between. I call it wonder hell right now. You know, it's this. It's so wonderful that anybody wants to pay any attention to this book that I wrote. It's so wonderful that it debuted at, you know, number two on the Washington Post bestseller list right behind Michelle Obama. It's crazy. Um, And this book that I really didn't even intend to write is like taken on a life of its own. It's wonderful. But I've also never been so exhausted in all my life 
right? It is, I've had, I've, and I've, you know, I've run three marathons and had two kids. So like I know tired, uh, it's hell, it's wonder hell. And I probably would have included a section on how to, you know, ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life. Well, when you're in that moment, when everything actually does jive and everything is going well, and you're just working harder, but maybe from a nicer seat on the airplane, what does that feel like? And how do you sustain and, and grow that as well? So maybe that's the next book, Wonder Hell. We'll see. Well, it's interesting because the subtitle is around ignore everyone, but there are, I suspect, people that we shouldn't ignore or some people that we shouldn't ignore, at least give them some oxygen. Yes, yes. It, which you said earlier in the show, it's just to go, mm, not really sure, let me ponder that, let me meditate upon that to see whether there's some value in it. Right, they're all data points. So I guess, you know, it's just, yeah, I think it's that, 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 I think that is the next book. I think we've discovered that, which is good. Uh, and there'll be a th- in the acknowledgements, a thank you to the boys at the Mojo Radio Show in Australia. Um, the Boston Marathon, you're at 33Ks, where the, traditionally they say the race starts. You, what's the what's, what's that big sign you go past that used to be an oil company sign? It was the famous sign. Oh, the Citgo sign. Yes. Yeah. You go past the big sign, you know you're almost there, but this is where every voice is saying, sit down, you can stop, you can walk, you don't have to do this, no one's looking. <laughs> yep. And you've done a number of marathons, so you know, and we all go through it. There's that place where that voice starts to come. Tell me, tell me your dialogue in the marathon where it's just you, it's just Laura. Tell me about the conversation you had in those dark times. The first marathon I ran um, was the Boston Marathon, and you have to uh, you have to qualify to run Boston. You have to be fast. So obviously, it's the first marathon I've run. I didn't qualify. The other way to do it is to run as a charity runner because I'm slow. <laughs> so I just got it in my head when I was 39 years old that I was going to start running. I'd never run a mile in my life. I run the first mile of my life. And I live in Boston and I don't do anything halfway. So fast forward six months later and I'm running the Boston Marathon. So there I am. I'm training for what I'm hoping to be a sub four marathon, which, you know, for regular armchair, you know, weekend athletes is a good time. Sub four, sub four hours as a 40 year old woman. And then it's 92 degrees on Marathon Monday. I don't know what that is, like 50 Celsius or something. It's, it's really, really hot. Um, and I have this really uninteresting, um, non-fatal, non-communicative thing called vasovagal syncope, which basically means I pass out often, you know, usually when I'm dehydrated and overheated. So it's 92 degrees and I get to mile 20, right? 33 K. And this is as far as you've run in training. You, you run to 20 miles and then, then you, then you start to taper. So I get to mile 20. And there's a voice inside my head as my feet are like basically like melting into the, into the tarmac of the street. And there's a voice inside my head that says, you're going to do it. You're, you're going to be a marathoner, like walk, crawl, run, cartwheel. Just as soon as you cross that line, you're going to be a marathoner. You've got an hour left. You can do this. And then there's a voice inside my head that's going, what are you crazy? You're going to die out here. What were you thinking? This was the dumbest idea you've ever had in your life. You idiot. Cause you know, your brain is boiling at that point. <laughs> I don't even know. I didn't know my name. It was 92 degrees. And, and here's the thing. 
only one of those voices gets to win and you're out there and you've been slogging away at this point. For me, it was like three and a half, three forty-five. Like it, I was the, the four hour time was long. It was, there's not going to happen. Um, and only one of those voices got to win. And I came to the realization that I was the only one that got to decide which of those voices won. And so one foot after the next, after the next, after the next, I had a running debate with myself. Do I stop? Do I go? What do I do? How do I do it? And when I had one mile left of, of the marathon, I the woman who was right in front of me, who was basically running at exactly the same pace, you know, the two of, I was just like, five feet behind her, just following. She put her right foot out, I put my right foot out. And we were, I was just basically mindless, brainless, just following her. She, at one mile to the end, she turns to get onto the, the, the last straightaway to, we could see the finish line. She turns to a police officer in the, in the, in the crowds. And the Boston Marathon is like five, six, seven people deep. People cheer the whole way. It is incredible. It's, it's, it's like Boston's coming out party in the spring every year. And she stops and she turns to the police officer and she goes, I'm done. Let me out. Again, it's 92 degrees. My, I saw my husband at mile 16 and he stuck um, Ziploc bags full of ice in my jog bra. And I saw another friend at mile 17 and she points to my bra and she's like, ice, brilliant. And I looked down and I was like, how'd these get here? I mean, we were, there, there was, none of us knew who we were. It was so incredible. It was like, it's like, they say that when you're running, it's like, it's 20 degrees warmer than it actually is. So like, imagine running a marathon in like 112 degree heat. I mean, it, your brain is boiling. And I looked at her and I was like, why? I will carry you. <laughs> like, what are you doing? And she was just like, I'm just done. I'm done. The marathon's over. I'm finished. Like she thought when we turned the corner, she was done. And I'm sure that woman, I wish I knew who she was. I'm sure she went home and she, you know, got some food in her and got rehydrated and took a shower and went, oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> but you know, you, there is this moment. And I think we all face those moments when things get hard and it's not just, wow, this hurts. This is painful, but it's like the struggle. Like how much grit and fortitude do you have to dig yourself back in and say, this is going to suck more than anything has ever sucked in my life. But at the end of it, someone's going to put a someone's going to put a silver cape around me and put a medal around my neck. Like I'm a superhero, right? So, what are those things in your life that you do that are so difficult that you don't know if you can make it to the other side? But there's a part of you inside your brain that goes, "What if you did? Wouldn't that be amazing?" One foot in front of the next, in front of the next, and the next thing you know, superhero. I love those moments. I think those moments are the moments that define us, that show us what we're made of. And I think after those moments, we're never the same again. There was the you before that moment and there was the you after that moment. And that is fascinating to me. I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> That's actually just dropped some Boston gold. Uh, <laughs> My story. You said it. that the best advice you ever got was you're just not that important. How do you use that advice? At the time I got that advice, I was, you know, I, I started my business, my last business when my older son was uh, six weeks old, by the way, pro tip, don't start a business when your first baby is six weeks old. That's, that's really difficult. Um, but I, it was a few years in 
the business is starting to to grow. I had now by this time a second child and children are starting to grow. I'm happily married uh, to a man with an exceptionally inflexible job and I'm deeply involved in a number of community organizations. And so I'm feeling really important to all of these aspects in my life. And I sit down with the mentor and I'm sort of just complaining, you know, whinging left and right about, you know, nothing. And she says to me, I don't get it. You're you're incredibly successful, happy marriage, healthy kids, great career. Like what, what's the problem? And I just said, you know, I just, I, I yell at my kids too much. I just get like short tempered and, and, and I'm, and I'm pissy. And I just, I don't know, like that, that, it, I don't like it. And she sort of asked me to talk about my day. And I talked about, oh, the power of technology. And isn't it great that I can be all things to all people at all times. And I can be at the park, but I can also be in the office because look at this fancy phone. And, you know, like I just, I was, I was, I was basically being a terrible human being. And she (laughs) looked at me and said, I don't get it. You're, you're not, you're not that important. And what she meant by that was, you're not that important to all these things all the time. And when you're trying to be that important to all these things all the time, you're in fact not that important to the areas where you are that important. So when I pick my kids up from, she basically, she said, if you pick your kids up from school and you can't put your phone in the trunk of your car for an hour and take your kids out for ice cream and ask them about their day and be present for them and listen to them, then you're not building a business that's that strong or PS, you're a micromanager, right? And if you can't leave your kids, you know, watching TV or, or, you know, playing by themselves for an hour and go, you know, attend to a work thing, then you're not raising kids that can be, you know, self-soothing and can, and, and can be independent and can, can, can be thinkers and entertain themselves. And, you know, she sort of like broke down my entire um, idea that I had to be the sun in the solar system and made me realize that, I, I'm not that important. And when I was trying to make myself that important, in fact, I was hurting the people I love and the causes that I held dear more than I was helping them. And so what I tell people today when they're stressed out and they can't find time to do the thing that they really want to do, write that book, train for the marathon, start their business, whatever it is that they care about, the reason that they can't do it is because they're trying to be that important to everything and they haven't figured out where they actually are that important and double down there. It's interesting just to to expand upon that, Laura. Now that you have done the book and you are doing keynote speeches on Limitless, tell me an area of your life that today you are having to apply your own lessons from the book and the work you do as a coach. So how are you coaching yourself through this? What's an area that you are applying Limitless to, to your own limits now? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I think this... I think this whole question about, you know, you're not ready was an area where I had to do that, where I, I had, I had created for myself an idea of what success would look like. I, I was a speaker. So I wrote this book because I noticed lots of other speakers had books and I was like, oh, I should get me one of them. That sounds good. And I thought that when I wrote the book that I would be speaking then on bigger stages and speaking more often and that I would be a speaker who had a book. And what I realized after the book came out and I've been spending a lot of time, you know, in Limitless and doing the media interviews and talking about it is that I'm actually not a speaker. I, I'm an author. I'm a writer. I, I, I create ideas and mold ideas into action through my writing. In fact, I'm a writer. I'm an author who speaks, which is 
a subtle difference, but it means that when I'm putting myself out into the world and when I'm thinking about my, what my next thing is, my next thing isn't build the next sizzle reel, come up with the next keynote. It's think about what the next book is going to be and then speak about that on stages. So I happen to be an author who's a pretty good speaker because I've spent a lot of time trying to become better at speaking, but a speaker is not who I am first and foremost. And so taking this framework of limitless and saying, I'm not going to use the externally defined definition of success, and I'm not going to just be on the path. In fact, there might be a different path for me. When I was at the bottom of the mountain, I looked at the top of the mountain and I'm like, I'm going to be a speaker who has a book. But then I got to the top of the mountain as a speaker who had a book and I went, oh, there's lots of other mountain ranges beyond this that are taller that I couldn't see from the bottom. And now that I'm here, what I realize is that what fuels me is not the speaking and that's what pays me, but it's the, it's the writing. And I want to be somebody who doesn't just, who's not just famous as a speaker because I'm a speaker. I want to be somebody who's famous as a speaker because I'm talking about these topics that you've read about that are actually real and resonant to you. It's interesting. We had a, a guy on the, on the show a little while ago called Simon Marshall, who's a sports psychologist and he runs Braveheart Coaching. He's a British guy. And the whole book was written about identity. And it's, it's interesting hearing you say that, Laura, because you're talking about identities in your mind and how the identities could actually be powerful for you or in fact hold you back. Is that something you think about consciously in terms of your identity uh, uh, in business as a contributor away from, from the work environment, that topic around identity, does that show up on your radar? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that we tell ourselves a lot of stories about who we are and who we're not and where we belong and where we don't belong. And I think a lot of that comes from identity. There's a great book by uh, Todd Herman called The Alter Ego Effect. And he talks about how um, people become better performers in whatever it is that they're doing, you know, sales, uh, you know, uh, whether it's sales or, you know, performing on, on stages, they become better performers when they figure out who their superhero, internal superhero would be, right? Like, and when they let go of the identity that they see themselves in the world and they embrace the identity of the person that they want to be or feel more comfortable being in that moment, they actually perform better. And, you know, he talks about someone like Beyonce, who was, uh, was, was, first seen, you know, in her church choir and was an absolutely incredible singer. But when she gets on stage to to be the Beyonce we know today, she has to wear skimpier outfits and do these, you know, provocative dances and, you know, sing lines that she wasn't necessarily comfortable with when she was this church girl from Houston. And so she embraced this identity of Sasha Fierce, right? That was her alter ego. And she became Sasha Fierce when she was out there and she could be Sasha Fierce because Sasha Fierce, the identity of Sasha Fierce belonged on stage doing those things, even though Beyonce Knowles wasn't comfortable doing it. And, you know, I, I, when I ran my company, I would always notice that I would have staff members who would come into client meetings and they would act like me, which, you know, sounds great and all, except they were terrible at it because they're not me. And, and it's not to say that I'm great and that they're terrible. It's that I would be terrible if I tried to be them because I'm not them. And so every staff member I ever have, I'd watch them go through this, go through this arc where they would come in, they would try to emulate me. They would flop doing it. They wouldn't quite know who they were. They would feel badly about themselves. They feel like they didn't belong. They feel like they weren't good enough until I finally said, I want you to be you. 
I interviewed you. I hired you. I didn't interview me and hire me. I, I interviewed, I, I hired you for who you are. I want you to be you. And when they went in and they were the best version of themselves, they were much better when, than when they were an iterative version of me. And so I think, I think that, you know, it's important to figure out like who you are when you're your very best version of yourself and lean into that person as much as you can, because I think that becomes your muscle memory. But I do think it's totally tied into this question of identity. When you crossed the line in Boston, were you Laura who ran a marathon or did you cross the line and become a marathoner? So, you know, I mentioned that all of my good friends call me LGO. I think that there is a stage persona that I have where I, where I get on stage and I'm loud and I'm brash and I'm, I'm, I'm adventurous and I'm playful and I'm full of moxie and, you know, a slight, you know, teaspoon of awkward. And I think I'm LGO there. Like LGO is like people who, people who know me on social media, know me as LGO. I'm Hey LGO. I'm Hey LGO on my website and social media everywhere. And so I think that there is a, a version of me that is, uh, a little more of everything I am, that's LGO. And I probably, when I crossed that marathon line in Boston, I was probably LGO. But, you know, LGO is a competitive rower. She's a marathoner. She's a badass. She's somebody who pushes you to, you know, not, not accept mediocrity. She's, um, she's somebody who reaches into your soul and sees your excellence. She's, um, she's somebody who can get on stage in front of 5,000 people and, you know, do her thing. Laura is somebody who hides in a corner at a party because she's a raging introvert and people come talk to her and then she goes home early. <laughs> like it's, it's just, but I, they're both me. They're just, I just tap into different parts of my energy to find them. Uh, it's interesting. Before you discovered LGO, you worked in the White House. And I'm just wondering, from back in that time when you worked at the White House, what did you take from the White House, a learning, a trait, an attribute that today has had a profound impact on you as a leader? When I got to the White House, I noticed that all of the bright, shiny, brilliant people would walk in with their dog-eared copies of the Washington Post and the New York Times, and they'd have articles circled, and they'd have things cut out, and they would sit before meetings would start, and they would write furiously. They would write all these notes. like had all these like brilliant ideas coming out of their brains so fast that they had to write them down. And I looked around thinking, I don't have any ideas. I don't know what they're <laughs> writing. I don't get it. And I would start to emulate them. I would read the paper from cover to cover and I would sit down and I would I would try to write stuff, but I wasn't really writing anything. And what I realized is that in all of my time trying to be like them, I missed out on the relationships that were forming around me, the conversations that were forming around me. I I was so busy trying to look like I knew what I was doing, fake it till you make it that I wasn't actually making it. I got really good at pretending to be them, but I didn't actually figure out who I wanted to be. And so I think one of the things that I, that really struck stuck with me during that time was that I, I'm not really good at doing things that are not consonant with who I am. I, I, I can't fake being somebody else. There's always gonna be somebody better at being them than you, right? That's why they're them. But I can be really good at being me and there will be people and companies who want me and there'll be people and companies who don't. And that's all right. And what I took into my executive recruiting time was that there actually really weren't bad candidates. 
they were just wrong candidates for certain jobs at certain organizations at certain moments in their life cycle. That doesn't make us bad. It just makes us not the right fit in that moment. But what makes us not the right fit in that moment for that job, for that company, for that organization's life cycle makes us great for somebody else. And if, if as a recruiter, I put the wrong person in the wrong job, I wasn't just harming that person's career. I was actually harming the person who should be there as well, because they're now somewhere where they're not the right fit. So I think fit is really important. And it's, I think comes back to why I wrote this book about consonants is that if we're not in a place that is able to bring the very best of who we are to solving the problem at hand, then we're not actually making the world a better place for being there. Do you think that was the most important choice you made in your career at that time? Was there a, was that a pivot point for you or can you remember a time where you made a specific choice that has led to who you are today? Uh, I think dropping out of law school and joining the Clinton campaign was a pretty important choice. I think, um, well, let me say, I think taking a leave of absence and joining the campaign was an important choice. I think quitting law school and driving up to Washington, D.C. without a job, um, but with a lot of connections to people I met along the way, was a pretty important and risky choice. <laughs> um, I think that going from the White House into executive search thinking that I would come back was a choice that I, I made for all the wrong reasons, but it turned out pretty well in the end. I mean, I thought I was going to hide out for four years and then go come back and do something big on Al Gore's presidential campaign and then never did because I loved it and also met my husband. Um, but I think probably the most important choice I made was when I had been working at that search firm for about four or five years and I realized that I didn't have a future there because I was just seen as too young by, 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 the, by my boss. Um, and I realized that there was a better, smarter way to do the work that had more integrity, more authenticity, more profit for us as a company, less expense for the client that would be better for, um, that would incentivize the right behavior, both in the client and the consultant in, and went into my boss's office and presented this and was told, yeah, no thanks. You can either go do that on your own or you can stay here and keep doing it my way. And by the way, you don't really might have much of a future here because you're too young. I think, I think leaving and starting my own company not really knowing exactly what I was going to do, but knowing that I, I had to do it. I couldn't not do it. Right. I think that was probably the biggest pivot point because I never realized that I was an entrepreneur. I never thought of myself as one until I became entrepreneurial and started a company. And that unlocked inside of me a hunger and an energy that I don't know that I would have found if I was the passenger in someone else's car. I, I'm just going to hand you over to Robert for the Nifty 90, but one quick question for you. When we interviewed legendary rock and roll icon Susie Quattro, Susie walks on stage as Susie Quattro, but then away from stage, she's little Susie from Detroit. And during the show, I said to her, who am I talking to? She said, what do you want to talk about? If you want to talk about my background, how I grew up, it's little Susie from Detroit. If you want to talk about songwriting, me being on stage, performing, all the things I've done, then it's Susie Quattro. My question is, during this interview, have you have I always been interviewing LGO or are there times where I've been interviewing Laura? I would say that if we did this interview four months ago, you know, when the book first came out, 
I was probably very much LGO because I was deeply armored and was trying to, you know, be impressive. At this point, I've done, you know, I've done, I've done like a hundred podcasts. I've done, you know, 20 radio shows. I've been on national TV, live national TV in several countries. At this point, I've, I'm pretty comfortable. Just, I am, I am just me. And I think that Laura and LGO are the same person at this point when I talk about Limitless, because I just, it is, it is something that I believe so deep in my bones. I'm, I'm so amazed that this book has resonated in the way that it has, and it just is the way that I see the world. So it's a good question. I don't know. I, I think I'm definitely not giving you talking points and, and, you know, guarded answers. I mean, this is just who I am, but also some of that are, is your interview style. I mean, I haven't had people ask me questions about, you know, whether or not parents are proud. I mean, I, you know, I think, I think you also are asking deeper questions than most, which forces people to let go of all of the the sound bites and the talking points that they walk in with. So good on you. That's awesome. Do you know, it's interesting. And just, super fun, uh, by the way, a, for someone like me who <laughs> does a lot of these. It's really fun to actually talk to somebody who does a different interview. As I let Robbo set up the Nifty 90, I was sitting uh, having coffee with a lady in Sydney, Australia, Laura, and I said, coming up shortly, I'm interviewing a lady who has written a new book who used to work in the White House. And the lady said to me, is the book Limitless? <laughs> No way. And I said, it is. And he said, she said, I have read Laura's book. Would you please pass on that? I loved it. And I'm now buying it to give away to everybody in the office. So that is legit straight up. Uh, the lady who is listening, who will know exactly who I'm talking about. So there you go. That's uh, that's absolutely legit feedback from Sydney, Australia. Oh, you have made my day. You know, I've never been to Australia and I really feel like we need to figure out a speaking tour. I got to get, I got to get to Australia. I'm, I'm, I, everybody, I've, I've spoken to a number of people and I've done a bunch of podcasts there and I've got a few people on social media who are, you know, are constantly, you know, pinging me and I'm, I'm, I think it'd be great fun. Even more than that, I didn't know that Gary had had coffee with your mum. <laughs> <laughs> now, Robbo, two things. You need to do a nifty 90 if Laura still has, if you're LG. Can we call you LGO? Do we, LGO. Do we have, yeah, built, yeah. have we built some panico? Are we kind of, you know, cool enough to be able to do that? I mean, did, did, did you call Susie Leather Tuscadero? Because that's did. really what I wanted. Oh, I did. We did. <laughs> I did. Oh, Leather Tuscadero. Mm. I'm I'm pretty straight, and I have to tell you, as a kid, I had a huge crush on on her. I just oh, Leather Tuscadero, Pinky Tuscadero, oh, the whole Tuscadero clan. I love them. She is an amazing lady. She really is. So, are we are we as cool as John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur Fire, who who <laughs> loved who loved dropping LGO, LGO this, LGO that, LGO this? Are we are we cool enough to at the end of the show just go? Hey, LGO, want to do a Nifty 90? Yeah, let's do it. And yes, you are, by the way. Let's <laughs> G-O, LGO. <laughs> Robbo's Nifty 90. Let's start the clock. Finish this sentence. I never get tired of. Uh, listening to the incredibly bizarre things that come out of my children's mouths. Your favourite outdoor activity? Rowing. The last book you read? Hillbilly Elegy. What's your favourite, bacon or Oreos? Oh, my God, bacon-flavoured Oreo sounds amazing, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, woman after my own heart. Thank oh, God it's only taken six seasons. How good does that sound? That's, I think I just started funny. drooling. Can I marry you? <laughs> 
What's your favourite sports team or favourite sports personality and why? I live in New England, so I'm going to have to say the New England Patriots. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do love Tom Brady because he's a thousand years old and he's still going strong. And as somebody who found my inner athlete only 10 years ago, I wanted Tom Brady the hell out of my life. Really, I love Billie Jean King because, you know, she broke all kinds of barriers and she's just so badass. But I kind of feel like I got to go with the hometown hero. She was a bit of a legend, wasn't she? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what's just a bit, yeah. Something that really annoys you. People being late. You and Gary are simpatico on that one. What's the greatest moment in your life to date? My gosh, the greatest moment of my life to date. Uh, well, I can't pick the birth of one of my children because the other one would get upset. That makes it so. a bit difficult. <laughs> yep. so you can, and it's, it can only be one. Well, I do think that the root of every good decision I've ever made dates back to, 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 to meeting and telling my husband that he should marry me. So I would say probably, I would probably say meeting my husband. The night I met him, I got him up on the bar dancing, and he's a pretty shy mathematician. So, okay, stop the clock. <laughs> We've got to hear. We've got to hear about this night. <laughs> you, you got your husband up on the bar dancing. Is that right? Shaking his money maker. Yeah, we, it was a bar called uh, Madam's Organ in a neighborhood called of, of Adams Morgan in Washington D.C. And there was. A DJ who for years I thought was a transvestite. She was six foot tall, wore, you know, giant, you know, platinum wig and go-go boots. And I just thought it was, I just thought she was a drag queen. It turns out she's not. But um, Stella (laughs) Neptune and she was playing Prince Raspberry Beret on, 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 on her turntable. And I went to Jonathan's friend, Mike, and I said, hey, Mike, John said that he'll get up in the bar if you get up in the bar. And I went up to John. I'm like, hey, John, Mike said he'll get up in the bar if you get up in the bar. And neither one of them knew I did it. And the next thing you know, we were all up in the bar dancing to Raspberry. Raspberry Beret. Nice. Raspberry Beret. Come on. You weren't at Coyote Ugly, were you? It sounds a bit like we a movie not, thing. <laughs> no, we're not. We were not there. And I and and actually, I was I was sober because I was on my way to another party where I was going to meet a guy who I'd been dating months earlier, who was coming back from his PhD program. Right. And my husband had been moving furniture all day long because he was moving into a new apartment. He was totally drunk, which is the reason why he got up on the bar <laughs> dancing. Um, but I never made it to that other party, and the rest is history. Twenty three wow. years later. Great story. Great story. All right, two more to go. Uh, what's three words you would use to describe yourself? Stubborn, tenacious, optimistic. You know what? After the hour I've just spent listening to you, I believe all three of those. Uh, and here's the last one. <laughs> this is this is the big question, the biggest one you'll face in this interview. You wake up in the morning, you jump out of bed. The mojo is just not working today. It's, you're just not motivated. It's bright and early, still not ready to go. You walk downstairs, you turn on the coffee maker, and reach for the radio, MP3 player, whatever it may be, Spotify. What's the first track you put on to get yourself suitably motivated for the day? Missy Mr. Meanie Elliot, for sure. I am all about the women singing the gangster rap because (laughs) they're badass. Yeah. And, you know, modern day equivalent, Lizzo, I would probably go for. But, yeah, yeah, Missy Elliot, definitely. Get your freak on. LGO's a gangster. Yeah, she is a big gangster, isn't she? LGO is the OG. Well, I was raised in the 80s in Miami. So, you know, I went to the Two Life Crew concerts. I went to Run DMC. I mean, you know, I yeah, saw yeah. it all back in the day. And by the way, it's tea, not coffee. Could you imagine me more caffeinated? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We That's are right. uncovering some stuff here. Yeah, uh, we're getting to the deep issues, I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. It took an hour, but now the interview is yeah, getting really right. interesting. We've only yeah, just exactly. warmed up. <laughs> okay, let's start recording. Um, two things. <laughs> when you do make your way down under, we will commit to do a show live with you from Bondi Beach. So this is an invitation oh, that Robbo, our chief engineer right here, the portly man to my right, uh, we will do a show from Bondi Beach with you when you come out. So if you're into it, we'll do that. We'll even buy the fish and chips. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm done. Committed. I think our budget will stretch that far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, my waistline though. <laughs> the other question I've got for you, what is hillbilly elegy? That sounds so in my lane. What is that? Uh, so um, it's a book by a guy by the name of J.D. Vance, and he grew up in the um, Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky. And it's basically all about it's his it's a memoir. It's his life story. And it's basically about how the the the, the lower class and the lower middle class in the United States have been forgotten and how they've turned from Democrats to Republicans and sort of why they feel sort of left behind. So it's 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 really um it's not exactly light reading, but it, it's basically uh, a, a, his story and his explanation of why he thinks the United States has gone from being, you know, a place of great democracy to a place that's, you know, divided and and is pointing fingers and people feel siloed and, and left alone. That sounds like me because I reckon the world needs more rednecks. That's what I'm, I'm just saying. I just think. Well, yeah, you he, it is. It is all about it is all about his his struggle to um, retain his redneck values and oh. and while he's also seeing all the things about rednecks that he realizes are not so great. Yeah, if you're in a crowded room and you can't get Gary's attention, just shout "Hillbilly" and he'll come running. <laughs> Alan Jackson was right. Alan Jackson wrote, "What this world needs is a few more rednecks," and AJ was right. LGO OG. Oh. <laughs> uh, this has been fantastic. I know we've kept you way over time. You've been very gracious with your time. But I've got to say, it's really interesting, Laura. I still have a half a page of things that we never got to, only because we took a few off ramps and you were wonderful. The book, I've already told you, I've already That's had it recommended to me. Sport. It's great. Uh, having been through the book, it is full of gold. Where, where do you send people to learn more about you, your work, uh, the book, your writing, your blogs, where's the best hub for you? So um, as I've said, LGO, so heylgo.com is uh, the shorthand to get to my website. All on all the socials, I'm at heylgo, so Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and uh, LinkedIn. And then the book is, of course, available on amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, anywhere fine books are sold. Um, if you can't find it in your local bookstore, you can ask them and they can order it. And if you are thinking, this all sounds really interesting, I'm not even sure where to start, then I would say go to limitlessassessment.com and strap in, take the quiz and figure out what's holding you back and how you can live a limit, limitless life. And I've got to say, your team uh, have been incredible. I've never had a pack sent to me like your team have with web details, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, photos, book covers, just incredible. The pack that your, I think, uh, Molly has sent out was just fantastic. So from, <laughs> from a show's perspective, uh, it makes our job a lot easier. Um, but you can tell your team, they do a wonderful job behind the scenes for you. Um, but Laura, Thank you so much 
for being so giving with your time and your wisdom. Thank you for taking time out to share with us on the show. It's just been um, great. There's loads more that I could have spoken to you about, but just love this time together. Well, thank you. And I will pass it along. I call her Miracle Molly Chaos Wrangler. So um, <laughs> she lives up to her name and we try to make we try to make things easy for you guys because we know you're super busy and we can talk about all those other things on Bondi Beach. Done. Or fish and chips. That's the one. I am undercover agent Jay Dobbins. I spent two years living amidst the Hells Angels, but it was nothing like spending one hour on the Mojo radio show. So now we have a connection to the White House. Is next week's guest Donald Trump? The Trumpinator. The Trumpinator. <laughs> the Trumpeter. Big, the, big fan of the show. The Speaking Trumpeter. of which, yes. can, I, can I take an off-ramp here? I would like to thank <laughs> a guy called Mark wrote a review on iTunes. Thank you for doing that, Mark. And the headline is, back on the bus. And this, I think this is quite interesting. Hey, guys, after a short absence, I've managed to get back on the big red bus. The quality of your guests' interviews and production is as stellar as ever. Like many of your regulars, I want to let you know how much we all appreciate the work you put into bringing us such great shows. Keep it up, guys. Cheers, Mark. My point is, I think the thing is with podcasts, look, it's fantastic for Mark to write to us. That gets our mojo working. It's a ripper. Mark's point is very interesting, is that I think people drift in and out of podcasts. And the nice thing about it is that you always you can save them. You can have them downloaded. They're always with you. Podcasts turn dead time into live time. But there are some times when you just need to let go and go and take care of something else. But then when you like when you want to get back on the path, open up the podcasts and off you go. So I do hear this a bit with people that they go through periods of heavy listening and then suddenly it changes, you get distracted, something else happens with the family or work or whatever, then you get back on the path. So I think that's also the power of podcasts because back in the day we were working in radio, if you missed a breakfast show, it was, was done. You, you could never go back and hear Gibbo and Duck on Triple yeah. M. It was done. You could still eat your mullows for breakfast though. Mullows. <laughs> Got the stick mullows. Yes, indeed. Yeah, no, you're right. Those people from America, that was Doug Mulray, who was one of the great, he was like the Howard Stern of Australia for many years. Well, he had his own Uh, cereal called Mullows. I used to eat them for breakfast. There you go. And um, they made you very happy with the munchies. Um, Anyway. I think that's a great story. And I think we should get Mark on the show because then we could rename the show Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. That's why he does production. All right, here's a little quick something for you. This is just for us to think about in terms of there's this huge vibe at the moment on zero waste. And I, I would I would challenge all of us in the studio, all of us listening, to go to your fridge and I guarantee in your fridge right now there's a nice piece of fruit or a veggie or a boneless chicken breast or some or a palmy or some spag bowl that you're definitely going to eat because you're not a food waster. But the truth is there's only a 50% chance of what's in the fridge now being eaten. Is what really? Yeah, no. yeah. And this is, this is fabulous. And there is this whole – what I'm really excited about is – and the reason I bring this up is I think that children are going to change our planet. And the way that children in particular are approaching zero waste and the choices they make I think is very noble and I think kids can teach us to be smarter. The rest, that food, 50%, the rest of it's going to be thrown out and it's going to be thrown in the trash. And what I'm going to do is represent lost money for you and me 
but it also is one of the biggest contributors to carbon emissions and climate change. The US wastes as much as $218 million a year on uneaten food. And the carbon emitted by that food waste can be classified as its own country. So if you take all the food waste just from the States and you put a carbon emission number against it, it would be third to the US and China. And what's interesting is, Brian, where I saw the story is um, Brian Rowe, the professor of Ohio State University, said people put things in refrigerators with the best intentions while letting them, the majority of the time, live slow and miserable deaths. So I think there's a great lesson for us is to say what goes in the fridge, every time you put it in there, before the second art, you put it in the fridge, then think about the second art. Are you really going to eat that? When are you going to eat it? How could you use that? Because $218 billion a year in the States alone, I and I have great faith in the kids coming through. Isn't it staggering though? It is staggering, but couldn't you go back a step before that and say, not before you put it in the fridge, before you put it in your trolley? Surely. I mean, 50%. I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you tell that story, thinking about our own food waste. I... I strongly doubt we would be even close to 50%. I'd say we might be more close to 20. But if you're wasting 50% of your food, surely you're not thinking when you're putting it in your trolley in your first place is what would occur to me. I would challenge you to do two things. Number one, go and empty your fridge, put all that on the counter. I do it every weekend. Have a look at what's at the back of the fridge. And number two, go to your cupboards, completely unpack your pantry and your cupboards, look at all that food, look at the the use-by date. Mm. And think about how much stuff's in that hasn't been used in two years. And yeah. I think once we start doing that, because the first thing people do when they're going through a change, a lifestyle change, and they have somebody come in and they empty their fridge, empty their cupboards, and people are always astounded mm. at actually what gets pushed to the back. When we say 20%, a guarantee that's going to be 40%. Because it's like people saying, I eat pretty well. Mm. All right. Mm. Let's take a typical day yesterday you controlled. What did you eat? And when you actually have to write down what you ate, that pretty, the pretty bit is the problem. And people do things without without even knowing about it. It's not even conscious for them. The pretty is the Tim Tam I had with my coffee, right? Is that what we're saying? (laughs) We're not going to go there. Lola, could you edit that piece out, please? I'm on it. (laughs) Can I just say, though, that the people with the 50%, I think, clearly don't have five kids, including two teenagers in their house because by the time it comes to go shopping on a Saturday, I'm cleaned out. Seriously. It's all gone. The Mojo Radio Show. So, Raspberry Beret? Yes, Prince. Let me hook it, in, let me hook it into a lesson of rock. Okay, hook, hook away. Prince would get mad when people called his music magical. He said, quote unquote, funk is the opposite of magic. Funk is about rules. And the rules of funk are explained here by Bootsy Collins. Lola, can you play Bootsy's basic funk formula off YouTube, please? One, two, three. And you hit on the one. One. You know? One. You know? And then you would try to fit your different notes, what you felt in between that, like... (laughs) You know? And that's the funk. You know, you know, and you can change that. You know, you know, 
know, it's however you feel, but you just have to fit it between that space, that little space that you got, which is one, two, three, four, one, two, you know? Four, one, two, three, four, one. And then you go back to your funk. Here you go. One. And then you want to break it down. Break down. One, two, you know, and there you go. You got your basic funk formula there. So his funk formula, which you just heard, is called Keep It On The One. And that's what he's playing there. He's always going back to the one. Yep. Now, this was a lesson he learned from his former band leader, James Brown. Oh. Collins would have all these really wild riffs, but then Brown set him straight. He said, son, just give me the one. You give me the one, you can do all those other funky things. So Collins started to get it. He then said, so if I give you the one, I can do all these other crazy things. So James Brown was the one who told Collins, son, you need to give me the one. So what I was thinking of is Mm. that means always going back to the fundamentals. So what's, if you think about any of our lives, what's the most critical thing? You can do all the things you want to do. But if you don't give me the one, it doesn't matter. So I think things like sleep. You talk about any performance person, the one has to be, if you don't get your sleep, it doesn't matter what you want to do. Sleep has to be a one for some people. Or it could be picking up the guitar or going for a ride on a dirt bike or time with a book or in Mark's case, the head of the show, Go back to the one, go back to my learning, go back to my podcast. So when you find things are out of hand or off the path, you just go back to the one. Here's where it ties back to you. You said a couple of shows ago you love to play jazz, right? I do love to play jazz. Well, you know that as well as I do. You moan every time you walk in the studio when it's playing. Sadly. (laughs) sadly. However, Miles Davis said at the end of his autobiography, I have never felt this creative. I feel like the best is yet to come. Like Prince says when he's talking about hitting the beat and getting to the music and the rhythm, I'm just going to keep getting up on the one, brother. I'm just going to keep getting my music, getting up on the one. Get up on the one every day I play. Get up on the one, son. So Miles Brown, James Brown. Miles Brown? (laughs) Is that a funk jazz version? (laughs) He said Miles Miles Brown. Brown. Miles Brown. Miles Brown. (laughs) But don't you find that interesting is that we get caught up in all these things looking for the next podcast, Mm. the next book, the next blog, the next film, the next quote. Mm. Mm. Just go back to the one. And once you find the one, you find your absolute fundamentals, when you get off the path, just go back to the one. I've got another example if, you, if you're interested, just quickly. Mm. Have, have a listen to this. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean shit. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you got to figure out. Do you remember the movie City Slickers that that came from? Yes. That's Curly, the ranchman, telling Billy Crystal that life is about one thing. And what's that one thing? Well, as he said, you've got to figure that out for yourself. I, I don't know, but my, as soon as you were talking about one thing, my head went straight there. Great movie, probably the reason. Good line, though. Well, that's why the one is up to each individual person. Yeah, you and that's why the one is one thing, yeah. Give me the one. All right. So we're going to finish up the shindig. Uh, 
I'm going to throw it to you. Well, I'm going to throw it to Lola. Lola, play that funky music, computer girl. We're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirdwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.